0: I wanna welcome those that are worshiping online. I was worshiping uh, online last week when Donovan said, I can talk to Clay, Clay can't talk to me. Do you remember that? So Donovan, you're probably not worshiping online, but hi, good to see you. Uh, keep Donovan's dad in your prayers this week. He's uh, having surgery in South Carolina tomorrow. Today, we're starting a, uh, a new sermon series. It's gonna focus on Christian leadership and Christian character. And specifically, the title of it is gonna be Christ-like Leadership in an age of outrage. When I say the word leadership, I'd like to know what comes to your mind. Is it a person? Is it a concept? Is it a definition? Is it an understanding of what leadership looks like played out? Is it somebody who's a visionary? Uh, Somebody who's bold? Uh, What comes to your mind when I say the word leadership? Uh, There's somebody that, that I have respected for many years He's the former governor of our state, and he's respected by Republicans and Democrats. He's a moderate, and I, you guys know I think the world needs more moderates, but it's a guy named Bill Haslam. And every summer, the staff recommends books uh, to the congregation if you're looking for summer reading books. And one of the books that I picked was a book that he just published that's called Faithful Presence. Uh, I read it this past week. It is excellent. It's excellent. Um, And I would encourage you if you're looking for something to read this summer, uh, to to, to take a look at at Governor Haslam's book. But one of the things that he talks about uh, in the book, and he's writing as a former mayor and as a governor, and primarily as a committed Christian, is he is very concerned that we now live in a culture that is toxic. And, And he's concerned with the way that we treat each other out in the public square, especially with the people with whom we disagree. And so he establishes very early on in the book, he says this, he says, we now live in a culture where anger and division and hatred and outrage sells. Stoking the fires of disagreement, he says, can be very profitable. Networks like CNN and Fox and MSNBC have all learned that there is money to be made from emphasizing just one side of an argument the matter I get at one side, the more I watch whoever's telling me how horrible that side is. And he says, we now live in a culture of outrage. a Culture of outrage, where every day there's something else to be outraged about. Somebody did something, somebody said something, somebody posted something, uh, and, and, and you know, I don't know how you feel, but after a while, like outrage gets exhausting. Right? You can only be outraged over so much stuff before you're just tired. <laughs> and, and so he, he, he picks up this theme and it actually gave me the, the idea for this series called Christlike Leadership in an Age of Outrage. And yes, the pandemic made this much more difficult because people are tired and they're frustrated and, 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 they're, and they're, they're struggling with all the things that we've had to struggle with. But, but something else that he says at the beginning of the book, he says, when it comes to our engagement in the public square, Christians are not very different from everyone else. We too have become immersed in outrage stories. We too have become outspoken advocates without taking the time to understand the arguments of the other side. We too are ready to doubt the motives of our opponents and speak with contempt about their policies. So it's no longer okay to disagree with somebody You actually have to discredit them as well as disagree with them. And that's a problem. It's become a problem. And so, one of the problems that we face as Christians is that we're called to be part of the solution, but so many times we're part of the problem. We're just as outraged as non Christians. And yet, in our text this morning that Andrew read, Jesus is calling us to be salt and light. So in this series, we're gonna talk about Christ-like leadership and what that is. And over the next three Wednesday nights, if you wanna dive deeper into this topic, uh, Rubel Shelley, who's a friend of mine, longtime minister in this community, he's gonna join me here on Wednesday night, at 6.30, right here in this room to talk more about Christian leadership and character and what that looks like. And so if you're in leadership at Woodmont, if you're going to be coming a leader this summer, then I would encourage you to either come on Wednesday or you can tune in because we got this fancy live stream system now that we are, uh, we are using. Hi, Donovan. Good to see you, buddy. Um, so when I finished seminary, my favorite gospel was Mark. And the reason I liked Mark is because uh, I studied under this guy at Princeton Seminary named Clifton Black, and Mark was kind of his baby. He did his PhD in uh, New Testament at Duke, and Mark was like his main project. So you know, I taught Mark and talked about the human side of Jesus and how detailed the gospel gets. Well, since I've been a minister for about 16 years, I'd now have to say that my favorite gospel now at age 40 is uh, Matthew's gospel. And I like Matthew's gospel because it's a teaching gospel, it's got five blocks of teaching in it. And I like Matthew's Gospel because it, can say, it contains the Sermon on the Mount, which A.J. Levine, a, Vandy, a New Testament scholar said is like the greatest hits of Jesus. And the uh, Sermon on the Mount begins with what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, that's the very beginning of, of chapter five. And, and so this is Jesus's understanding of the blessed life, the happy life, the fulfilled life. Um, If we were to make a list of Beatitudes based on our worldly context, I think it might look something like this. Blessed are the rich, for they will never have to stress over bills. Blessed are the well-connected, for they will always have friends. Blessed are the good-looking, for everybody will wanna check them out. Blessed are those born into privilege, for they will never have to struggle. Uh, blessed are the pushy, for they'll get their way in life. Blessed are the well-educated, because they'll have all the answers. Blessed are the overly confident, because they will have self-esteem. Blessed are the funny people, for everybody will wanna be around them. Blessed are the troublemakers, for they will get noticed. That's not what Jesus says. That's not at all what he says. In fact, Andrew sent me a, a, uh, a translation of the Beatitudes this week that I've never seen before. It's by a guy named Forrester Church who's a Unitarian pastor in New York City. And this is what Forrester Church takes with the Beatitudes. He says, this is kind of his interpretation. Blessed are the poor in spirit for they know the unutterable beauty of simple things. Blessed are those who mourn for they have dared to risk their hearts by giving of their love. Blessed are the meek. Gentle earth shall embrace them and hallow them as its own blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for for they shall know the taste of noble thoughts and deeds blessed are the merciful for in return theirs is the gift of giving blessed are the pure in heart for they shall be at one with themselves and the universe blessed are the peacemakers for theirs is a kinship with everything that is holy blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for the truth will set them free I thought that was an interesting way to read uh, the Beatitudes. Can you imagine what the disciples and the people who were there that day when Jesus started speaking, can you imagine what they thought when Jesus started laying out these Beatitudes and he said, this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what the blessed life is about. They were probably like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. That defies conventional wisdom. What are you talking about? That's exactly what he was doing. (laughs) He was taking conventional wisdom and he was turning it over upside on its head. And so as it relates to Christ-like leadership, and that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks in, in the month of June, then I think... We have to dive into the teachings of Christ if we wanna become more Christ-like. And so I'm gonna unpack uh, four of these this morning because I can't get to all of them, but I would encourage you in your own devotional life to read a beatitude and then sit there and reflect and say, what is this saying to me? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? Um, I think it's another way of saying those who are humble. It's the opposite of being proud and arrogant. It means being humble and reverent, not conceited and self-satisfied. I don't think Jesus was specifically just referring to the poor, but if you read Luke's version of this called the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. But, but I don't think he was just referring to the poor, but I will say this. I think it's much more difficult to be poor in spirit, to be humble when you're wealthy and affluent, when you're well-accomplished and well-connected. I think it's possible, but I think it's just more challenging. Jesus knew that there's nothing worse than not having the means to pay the basic bills. And that's why so much of his ministry was focused on the poor, the peasants, He cared about the poor, which means that the church is called to care about the poor. We're going to be working, uh, we have been working on our budget for the new year and the board will meet tomorrow night. And we need to make sure that our outreach dollars from Woodmont are going to help the poor, to help people who are struggling in this community. That should be a priority to all of us. There's this uh, story told about a father, um, some of you if you've been at the bridge a long time, you may have heard me tell this a long time ago, but this father was from a wealthy family and he decided, he goes, I'm going to take my son and drive him out into the country and, and I'm going uh, to show him how poor people live. And so they get in the car and they drive out and they, you know, they spend like two nights on this farm that would be considered a, a, a poor family's farm. And so they're driving back into the city and the, the dad says, well, how'd you like the trip, son? He said, oh, it was great, dad. He said, did you see how poor people lived? And the father said, oh yeah, I did, said the son. So tell me, what'd you learn? And the son looked at him and said, I saw that we have one dog and they have four. He says, we have a pool that reaches to the middle of our garden and they have a creek that has no end. We have imported lanterns in our garden, but they have the stars at night. Our patio reaches to the front yard, but they have the whole horizon. We have a small piece of land to live on, but they have fields that go on and on. He says, we have servants at our house, but they serve others. We buy our food, but they get to grow their food, Dad. We have walls around our property, but they have friends to protect them. And the boy's father just kind of sat there speechless. And before he could say anything else, the son goes, Dad, thank you so much for taking me and showing me how poor we really are. There's a lot of wisdom in the simple life and not being attached to too many things. Studies have shown that depression and anxiety is much higher among the wealthy and the affluent. Why is that? Possessions become possessive. Poor in spirit means understanding that we are dependent upon God. It means looking to God for daily strength and guidance, daily hope and inspiration. It means acknowledging that we don't have all the answers, that we can't control everything, even though we sometimes try to control everything. The sooner we quit trying to control everything, uh, the more fulfilled we're gonna be because there's a lot of things that are out of our control, namely other people's behavior. But sometimes we need to turn things over to God and let them go because we've wrestled with it and wrestled with it and wrestled with it and we need to stop. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Hey, has anybody here this morning needed mercy over the past year? I think being merciful means knowing when other people have had enough. It means cutting others some slack from time to time. Being merciful means being kind and compassionate, not only in spirit, but also in behavior, in deeds and actions. You should be kind to everybody because everybody is fighting some kind of battle and you have no idea what it is. Uh, Over the years, I've called this invisible baggage. I've even preached sermons on invisible baggage. Everybody has invisible baggage. You can't see it, but guess what? It's there and they're dealing with it every single day. So many people in this world are so caught up in their own problems that they forget that there's people all around them that are struggling. And so if we are disinterested in the lives of others, then we shouldn't be surprised when they are disinterested in us. If if, if we don't care about other people, then why do we expect other people to care about us? I think this beatitude is basically saying, blessed are those who walk in the shoes of others, who see through the eyes of others, who think the thoughts and feelings of others. Blessed are those who care for other people because that means that other people will care about them in return. It's the golden rule that Jesus says later in Matthew's Gospel. If you want to receive mercy, show mercy. If you wanna be forgiven, go forgive. If you want people to love you, learn to love. Next, Jesus says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God." You know, Jesus loved children because they are pure in heart. One of the things that I, I told the 915 service is that I really miss uh, pre, you know until COVID came, all the kids at the 915 service could like come up and sit at the front of the sanctuary, and now we can't do that because. We can't do that, right? But I miss seeing all those kids because kids are so funny and they're so innocent and they're so pure. And that's why Jesus loved them. That's why he welcomed them. That's why he said, this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Um, Another way to translate this, blessed are the pure in heart, would be to say, blessed is the person whose motives are entirely unmixed. For that person shall see God. Which begs the question for us as adults, can any of us actually have entirely unmixed motives? Have we not been tainted and scarred by the world to where we have to almost ask ourselves, why do we do what we do? Why do we say what we say? Is it possible to truly be pure in heart once you've seen the way that some people can act in life? And then we look in the mirror and say, oh, guess what, I can act that way. Motive matters, honesty matters, truth matters. Being honest with ourselves matters. We have to ask ourselves, what is the motive behind the things that we do? Jesus says that those who are pure in heart with unmixed motives will see God. This beatitude has to do with our intentions. And we must ask, what is our intention? What is our motive? What is the reasoning behind what we are doing? That's a tough question. But it's an important question. Lastly this morning, one of my favorite Beatitudes that I'm gonna talk about, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. You know, there has always been a difference between being a peacemaker and a peace lover or a peace keeper. Many of us love peace, but how many of us are willing to actually go and work for peace? Um, Jenny talked about in communion, uh, some of the racial reconciliation work, our denomination does. You know, you don't have peace without justice. Justice is a part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, you, you, don't get pe- you don't get one without the other. There is a proactive component to being a peacemaker in the world. We are called to build bridges. We are called to reconcile relationships before they are broken. Sometimes we're called to face really difficult situations in order to, to make them better instead of just avoiding them. I quoted uh, John Locks, who retired from Vandy, philosophy professor. He said, there is too much passivity in the world. Many of us will do anything and everything to avoid conflict and to avoid difficult situations because we don't wanna deal with it. But avoiding every difficult situation is not always what leads to peace. Henry Nouwen, a great spiritual author, I'd recommend any of his books to you. Um, He wrote this little thin book called Peace Work. And, And at the beginning of the book he says, peacemaking belongs to the heart of our Christian vocation. Peacemaking is a full-time task for all Christians. And peacemaking, he says, has become in our century the most urgent of all Christian tasks. Stanley Harwas Ethicist from Duke, now retired. I got to spend time with him when I was at Suwannee. He wrote this great primer for Christian ethics called The Peaceable Kingdom. And this is what he says. He says, our need to be in control is the basis for the violence of our lives. For since our control and power cannot help but be built on an insufficient basis, we must use force to maintain the illusion that we are in control. Robert Schuler pastored the the Crystal Cathedral out in LA. Now it's a Catholic church, beautiful building if you've ever been there. And, And this is what he says about this beatitude. Who are the peacemakers? They're not necessarily the people who are talking about peace all the time. You ever noticed how some of the people who wanna talk about issues all the time are not necessarily the ones that actually wanna solve the issues? Peacemakers are those who are doing something, creating something, building something, bridges mostly. Maybe peacemakers are people like you and me who in our own ways are trying to bring Jesus into human hearts. Do you want peace in your family, Shuler says? Do you want peace in your community? Do you want peace in other races and other cultures? He says there will not be peace anywhere as long as there is war going on in your heart and in your soul. Let me say that again. There will not be peace anywhere as long as there is war going on in your heart and in your soul. You cannot be a peacemaker if you are constantly battling and fighting right here. I've always believed that if peace is to happen on any level in our culture, in our world, it has to start right here. And the times when I'm not a peacemaker are the times when I'm at war right here. Remember what G.K. Chesterton said when he called into that radio station? The question on the table was, what's wrong with the world? And he said, I am, sir. When somebody's not at peace with themselves, they will lash out. They will blame others. They will manipulate others. It becomes so obvious so quickly. And so I think finding inner peace is one of the most challenging parts of the spiritual life, the Christian life. Being an agent for peace. Not reacting to people the same way that they come at you. These beatitudes give us insight into what it means to have Christ-like character. And this is what we're going to talk about throughout the month of June is what does it mean to to lead in life, whether it's at work, at church, your family, to lead like Christ would lead. And so I want to close with a couple of questions that I want you to kind of take with you today before we, uh, hopefully some of you will come Wednesday and uh, or next week. These are the questions I want you to think about. What are you doing in your life to spend time with Jesus? It's a pretty Baptist question, right? But it's an important one. What are you doing to spend time with Jesus? Secondly, what are you doing to be salt and light in a world of constant outrage? Third question, what are you doing to form and develop your own Christian character on a regular basis? And lastly, this, what are you doing to spread love to a hurting world? Would you join me in prayer? Loving God, thank you for these teachings of Christ, even though we often don't understand them. And many times we we acknowledge that we don't live them. Help us to wrestle with them and to try to become more Christ-like in our words and in our deeds. Thank you for this church community where we can encourage each other, where we can grow, where we can share. And I pray that in the coming weeks that we'll continue to wrestle with this question. How can we be more Christ-like in a world where there is a lot of anger, there is a lot of outrage? In Christ's name, amen.